Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. We will be reading the whole of chapter 3, 21 verses. And it is God's word, so please give it your full attention. 1 Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord again called Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling it as, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever." Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Canon, coming from the Greek word kanon, means rule, ruler, or standard, as a word which signifies an objective measure. Paul actually uses this word in Galatians 6.16, saying of the whole book of Galatians, For all who walk by this rule, kanon, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Since the early church... It was a word used to speak about the books of the Bible. And now, 
it's become a more commonly used word, even outside of the church. Some of the first to commonly use the word outside of the church were, if I have my pop history right, Star Wars fans, believe it or not. These fans seem to talk almost endlessly about canon. They ask these types of questions. Are these new movies canonical? because they're big-budget films by Lucasfilm? Or would George Lucas have to have a part in these to actually make them canonical? Would it merely have to be in the spirit of the original movies to make it canonical, and so on and so on? Today, the idea of canon has come into even greater style. Some things are even now declared canon events as a form of a joke about how necessary and unchangeable these events are. In a recent movie, this was a central point of a storyline. The canon event, that is, an unchangeable, predetermined, an unable-to-be-resisted event, one that you should ought to just sit back passively and receive. To me, this is fascinating to come into regular people, these types of questions. Regular people are now thinking about the things that Calvinists have had to wrestle with for a very long time. People are beginning to ask the questions those who became Calvinists had to ask from the very beginning. Are canon events, so to speak, real? That is, can our lives really be changed? Do our actions actually matter? Are we completely in charge of our life? Or are our actions completely meaningless? Questions such as these ought to have filled the mind of Eli. And his wrong answers to these questions cost him his life. And his son's life, son's lives, rather, his two son's lives. And as we enter into our, our text, it is no wonder that he has been so fatalistic in his life, as we've seen also, until now in 1 Samuel. He doesn't know the Lord, as 1 Samuel 2 has said, and he's ruled by his own reason, not revelation. For revelation at this time in Israel had fallen on hard times. Samuel is first called by God to remedy this situation, God begins to speak again to Israel in earnest, starting in verse 1. As we go to a first section, which is verses 1 through 9, which details the decline of an old man and the increase of a humble boy. So we see this immediately as we enter into our story, that Revelation has continued, or rather must be continued by a different manner than it was. 1 Samuel 3, 1. And the boy Samuel was ministering before the Lord in the presence of Eli, and a word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was not a widespread revelation. Revelation was not widespread in that time, so it was very rare and precious. God had not spoken through Eli all of his days, in fact. And although the people had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that is the Pentateuch, Eli's sons were obviously not teaching it. They were not teaching the law to the people. For all this, God still brought the occasional vision and prophecies, just like that already happened, as we saw in 1 Samuel 2, when a man of God came to Eli and told him judgment against him. But God spoke rarely, and when he did, it was through these, these random assortment of men of God, and not constantly and consistently through the office of the prophet in the tabernacle. With Samuel's calling here in 1 Samuel 3, the office of the prophet was being restored in Israel. 
As the blind Eli and young Samuel lie down to sleep near the tabernacle, God speaks in the dead of night to them. This lamp of God in verse 3 tells us this, that it was the dead of night, as it was lit every day after the evening sacrifice and extinguished before the morning sacrifice. So when there was not light, as Exodus 30, 7 through 8, when there was not light, this was the only light in the tabernacle. This was the lamp of God. Well, in the night, God calls to Samuel, and Samuel replies, here I am. And he literally runs, in verse 5, to Eli, saying again, here I am, adding his reasons for you called me. These words, here I am, are very significant in Scripture. It is the same word used for two other significant callings. Isaiah says, here I am, to the Lord's call in Isaiah 6. And Ananias says, here I am to the Lord, when he was called to evangelize Paul in Acts 9. These are the words of a willing servant, ready to do as his superior bids him to do. With What's amazing in this case is not only Samuel's obedience, but how the voice of the Lord was so audible that Samuel mistook it for Eli's voice. In Isaiah's case and Ananias' case, they both immediately knew that it was the Lord calling to them. This mistake in Samuel with God's voice was done by God with a purpose, as we'll find. It was no fault of Samuel's. But see how immediate Samuel's obedience was, even to what he thought was Eli's voice. See how he immediately obeys, gets up and goes to Eli in the dead of night, and doesn't protest when Eli says, but I didn't call you. He doesn't protest and say, but you did call me, Eli, every time that this happens. So knowing Samuel, it's not because he's weary of obedience that he doesn't run the second time back to Eli. A little more warily, perhaps, this time, but all the same with the same words. Here I am, for you called me. What does he again do, or what, why does he again go to Eli instead of speaking to God himself Verse 7 actually explains why this is happening. This was before Samuel knew the Lord, verse 7, and before he revealed to Samuel the word of the Lord. This comment in verse 7 is not a critique of Samuel and his call. Unlike Eli, who literally was ignorant of the Lord in his ways, in 1 Samuel 2, it's a comment that explains his mistakes through the understandable notion that Samuel was not accustomed to the Lord's voice yet, because God had not spoken in the tabernacle for some time. Regardless, Samuel goes to Eli a third time, undaunted after God calls him, in verse 8, with the same words, Here I am, for you called to me. Only this third time, finally, Eli realizes that the Lord was calling the boy and gives him instructions. It seems that Eli is not growing dim in his eyesight alone. He is growing dim even in his spiritual discernment. But he gives the boy good instructions, saying, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears next time the the voice comes. Which Samuel obeys and receives a revelation so horrible, he almost cannot speak it to Eli. As we finish Samuel's calling, why did God call Samuel like this? Why the back and forth? three times. It was for several reasons and really shows the nature of a man called of the Lord. Samuel first was a humble boy and did not expect the Lord to be calling to him. 
He knew his station as a boy of the temple and did not instantly think that the Lord was speaking to him. And the man who is called waits for the Lord's voice. Second, the reason Samuel was called three times by the Lord was then and then was recognized by Eli for the sake. Goodness, let me go back. The second reason was that Eli <coughs> should have recognized and was forced to recognize that this was a calling from the Lord. And Israel was made to be recognizing this as well, that Samuel was called of the Lord. Because what he was about to say needed this. It was very hard indeed. It was God's design to call him three times to show Samuel's obedience to Eli. So that when condemnation against Eli came through Samuel's mouth, it would be obvious to Eli and to all of Israel that it was not Samuel trying to usurp his position, but was simply the word of the Lord. And it was important that Eli recognize this even before the prophecy was given. So what was the fearful content of this prophecy? We see this prophecy about God's penalties for sin in verses 10 through 14. So this is verses 10 through 14, the decline and end of Eli's house in judgment. Now we come to the decline and end. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am working a matter in Israel, which all who hear it will tingle his two ears. In that day, I will come to Eli with all that I said to his house from beginning to completion, and I am conspicuous to him that I will judge his house until forever. For the iniquity which he knew, because his sons were despicable to themselves, and you did not restrain them. And therefore, I have sworn concerning the house of Eli, I shall not cover over the iniquity of the house of Eli by sacrifice or by offering forever. This is truly a fearful revelation, causing the ears of those who hold, hear it to shudder, like lightning leaving a ringing in one's ears, which stays even after it struck. Eli will die. His sons will die, and his house will never be high priests ever again. And God says he personally will do this. And we see this in the next chapter in chapter 4 when he sends the Philistines to accomplish this. This judgment is verse 12, in that day. So that Eli knows this is a future action, a future time. God is graciously giving Eli time to repent. In fact, this is the second time that he has given judgment to Eli and to his sons. But what must he repent over? His failure as a father and as a priest, verse 13, I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. The law of God and its consequences are being proclaimed to Eli here very, very explicitly. The punishment for blaspheming God is death says Leviticus 24. And so God will, verse 13, punish Eli's house forever. That is, not damnation of an entire house, as if any child with Eli in their ancestry will go to hell. Rather, a complete and therefore eternal restriction from the high priesthood. Yet it's quite obvious that for some of Eli's house, Phineas and Hophni, that they were damned for their sins. 
And God seals this punishment of destruction, the destruction of of Eli's house to poverty and ruin forever with these words in verse 14. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned by sacrifice or offering forever. That is to say towards Eli and to all Israel, even if these wicked and crafty sons of Eli contrive to make themselves clean through some outward public sacrifice, then here is a promise to show that they are liars and no contrived sacrifice will stop the coming of this punishment. What is Eli's response to such an incredible judgment against his house and himself? This disaster is quite memorable. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Which brings us to verses 15 through 21, the decline and and lost salvation of Eli. Let us recognize that Eli's response here of saying, let is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him, is pious in at least one way. It affirms that God is sovereign, that God is sovereignly wise. We must agree with him that in everything, it is the Lord, and whatever God does is good, let him do what seems good to him. This is indeed the reverse of judges, where everyone did what was good in their own eyes. Eli finally recognizes that the Lord defines what is good and not his own thoughts. There is good to this response, no doubt, just as there is some good in Eli as well. However, this response of Eli most notably is interesting, not for what is said, but for what is absent. Repentance and asking the Lord for mercy are entirely absent. Eli's response is completely devoid of repentance and completely devoid of applying to the Lord for salvation. Eli had this to say in response to a horrifying judgment. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. God had indeed declared that no sacrifice would stop the coming of this disaster upon the house of Eli and Eli, yet that that did not mean that it could not be covered otherwise. God had just said that it could not be covered through the sacrifices or offerings that might be placed in ostentation to manipulate the people. Eli had every opportunity for years after this point to repent. In fact, he was spoken to by two prophets on two separate occasions about this condemnation, and yet he does not even seem to consider repentance. Let's compare Eli's response to an incredible judgment pronounced upon him and his sons with another man who, in almost the same way, had judgment pronounced upon him and his son, that is, King David in 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan said as a judgment, The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And what did David say in response? Did he say, oh, well, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him and go his own way like Eli. He immediately repents in the face of the judgment, and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And when punishment is certainly pronounced upon his son for his grave sin against Bathsheba, what does David do? 
Does he say, oh, well, it's the Lord, and live for years in the same way that he had before? No, immediately, David says, he sought the Lord on behalf of the child. This is verse 16 of 2 Samuel 12. David fasted and went in, lay all night on the ground. He would not raise from the ground, nor did he eat food with them. David not only repented of his sin, but applied to the Lord for mercy, that the punishment might be taken away from him. Hear David's instructive words on why he sought the Lord so vehemently in his distress, even as judgment was pronounced upon him by a prophet. David said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and to the child may live. These are the very opposite of Eli's words. In that, David's mind, it is the Lord means, it is the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. David knew the Lord, the gracious Lord, and so he applied to God for mercy and repented. Repent and apply brothers and sisters, but Eli says, let him do what seems best to him as a way of dismissing his own repentance and despairing that God is merciful at all. David said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious and the child may live? Which one ought we to be like? Which one really understands the Lord and which one understands the sacrifice of Christ? We must understand that Repentance, however, does not purchase us our salvation. It would not have purchased even Eli's salvation. No, even in the Old Testament, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And it is impossible for repentance to take away sins, our repentance, or even the punishment of sins. No, repentance is our recognizing that we deserve that punishment and recognizing that there is mercy in God as we hate our sin. But why is there mercy in God? Because the lamp of God has not gone out. That is, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, as the lamp signified in this story, the mercy and salvation of Christ has not gone out and will not go out, even in the darkest night. So it ought to have pointed Eli each and every night to the Messiah, each and every night to the light of Christ, to the light of the Messiah, and to the mercy that is in the Lord through him. Why is there mercy in God? Because of his anointed, Christ Jesus. Blind Eli had forgotten the Messiah, just as he could no longer see the lamp of God in the tabernacle as his eyesight was going away. And so he had forgotten God's mercy. He had forgotten God gives good gifts to his children, to those who ask. He had become, so to speak, a good Muslim who says, It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. And lives as if God were not a person, but an impersonal force. Eli was not a good Jew who looks to God's provision in the Messiah. God is sovereign. Yes, brothers and sisters. Yes, just as Eli said. But he's not only sovereign. He's provided for our salvation in his mercy, and our repentance matters. Even when all seems hopeless, all is not lost. All is not hopeless because of the mercy which is in Christ Jesus. Do not mope about and think your actions, your repentance, or your life does not matter, so you do not do them like the hyper-Calvinist and Eli. 
The sacrifice of Jesus proves your life and actions matter to God. Were it not for Christ taking our punishment, then we ought to expect every just punishment being placed upon us regardless of repentance. Yet because of Christ taking our punishment, we ought to expect that God will take our repentance and be merciful to us if we ask. For whom did Christ die? Did he die for the perfect man? He died for the sinner. Repent, and Christ will have mercy. For even before you were able to repent, brothers and sisters, Christ died on the cross for your salvation. Such was God's love for sinners. And even before you were able to repent, if you are a Christian, then the Holy Spirit of Christ was sent into your hearts to cause you to be able to repent and believe. If someone loves his sin so much as to refuse to repent of it, then that person has reason to doubt of his own salvation. Beware that you come to a place where you cannot repent like Eli, for the person who loves his sin is at enmity with God. And as Hodge says, he that repents believes. He that does not repent does not believe. He that does not believe is not justified. So brothers and sisters, do not think like Eli that because everything is predestined, that our actions and our repentance do not matter. No, on the contrary, your actions matter, just as Eli should have repented. Just know that you are not in charge. Although repentance is a gift from Christ Jesus, your repentance is necessary. It's a necessary fruit of the Spirit that he gives us, a result of God's work. But that God does not repent and have faith For you, brothers and sisters, God does not have faith and repentance for you. Our repentance and faith are our activity by God's grace. We ought not be passive like Eli in repentance and faith. Repent, ask, apply for mercy, and look to Christ for salvation, and he will surely answer in his abounding loving kindness, because Christ did not die simply to take away the punishment of sin, but to raise us to newness of life and communion with God, as the ark of God symbolizes. We see this happening in Israel. Those who would not repent are blind and dying, and those who would follow after the Lord in faith are rising in Samuel. Christ died not that we can simply be saved from sin and live a life as if it mattered not to repent, but that we would be saved unto newness of life, unto repentance. It is repentance unto life, brothers and sisters. Your actions matter. Repent in Christ, and the Lord will hear you and be gracious. Repent by turning from your sin and turning to Christ, the only one who can save from sin. Even if you're nearly blind like Eli, there is hope in the darkness. Even in the darkest night, the light of Christ always shines to forgive. Let us go to him in prayer. Our Lord, our Lord Christ, we thank you that you shine to the nations hope and forgiveness, forgiveness from sin. We ask, Lord, that you would give all of us repentance. Lord, that our hatred of sin and love of you would not result in in merely an admission that you are sovereign, 
which even the demons believe, but that we would trust in you, that we would give over our own souls to your trust, that you would give us greater and greater faith, Lord, that we would repent of the evils of which we have done, knowing that there is great forgiveness in Christ, and not only turn from them, but turn to Christ to greater and greater communion with you, our triune God. We thank you that you have done this in Israel and that you are doing this in the Israel of God, in the church here on earth now. We thank you, Lord, that as we are united to the true Israel, Christ Jesus, that you are sanctifying us and bringing us to that great day of redemption. Lord, work in us those works which you have been planted in us to do. Give us the energy which comes only from you. And Lord, we pray that you might be glorified in our doing. We ask all this, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.